Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, May 11th, 2021, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. We are happy to welcome author Brian Power back to our show with more about his book, Song of Atlantis, which is about the sustainability of the Earth envisioned by well-drawn characters, thinkers, scientists, and explorers, led by an American Indian anthropologist, Gordon Tallbear. Three storylines are interwoven throughout the novel. It begins 12,500 years ago with Eamon Goro, master architect of the advanced civilization of Atlantis, harnessing the Earth's forces in an unprecedented structure that will provide a perpetual and limitless source of clean energy to sustain the planet's growing civilization. They soon unravel the secrets of perpetual energy and plan to recreate this energy source to benefit the world. In the book, Song of Atlantis, Brian speculates that when the ancient civilization of Atlantis realized their island was in peril, they sent emissaries to all parts of the world in the hopes of imparting their knowledge to other less enlightened cultures. This premise sets the stage for a riveting thriller that pits good against evil as a team of contemporary scientists discover a treasure trove of technology left by the Atlanteans that may reveal the secret to harnessing clean energy for the entire planet. And you can visit his website, which is songofatlantis.com. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank Jada and Fiona for hosting the switchboard tonight for those who may have a question or comment. We do have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds thanks to Tammy's continual dedication. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk. And if you'd like to show your support of our program, please just click follow on our page here, and you'll get our bi-weekly show notices if you enable those. Our main website is starseedhotline.com, and the Stage 1 Starseed confirmation readings are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one Zoom session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, Emerald, Miara, Riley, or myself. Lavendar's sessions are available now for only her established clients, and they've been redesigned to focus on your solar return covering your natural state, your rites of passage, and your masterships, as well as your uh, solar return and current transits. So you're getting everything in a one-hour session, which would be scheduled ideally just before your birthday. Riley, Emerald, and Miara are now available for the live stage two sessions, so you'll be able to have a starseed consultation in a matter of weeks rather than months. And remember, if you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power, so if you can find out exactly when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And that usually takes less than a week. And if, if you want the stage two interpretation of that chart, um, Emerald, Riley, and Miara are also available with very little waiting. But with me, you'll need to order about six months ahead to make sure you get it before your 10 hours. And go and check out the new pages on our website. 
So uh, first up this evening, I would like to get to my right screen here, um, introduce Anastasia with her wonderful Starseed News. Hello, Arielle. Good evening, everybody. Great to be with you. Hi. Well, we get on with our news tonight. I want to tell you about a man who undertook the study of the Spanish language because his dog, an English bulldog, could not speak English. Ever wondered about people in foreign countries speaking foreign language and ever stopped to think that maybe they, their animals don't speak English? Well, it took this guy a while to figure out why his pet wouldn't obey his commands. Somebody gave him the dog, and he was, you know, loving the dog and teaching the dog and calling the dog, and it was as if the dog was deaf. The dog would not respond. He finally figured out that the dog didn't speak English. I don't know how the man figured out that the boy, the little dog, knew Spanish, but this dog dad, who calls himself Girth, has a portly little tummy on him, the man, shared a video of his pet that finally responded when he spoke Spanish words. That post has now gone viral. It's gained more than 5 million views. Everyone's fascinated by it because the man has taught himself to speak Spanish so that he could speak and communicate with his dog. He has on his biography, proud owner of the world's famous Spanish bulldog, Senor Snacks. The guy said, these people gave me this dog for free, and he used a bunch of swear words in there, by the way. Uh, He said, only to find out it speaks blankety-blank Spanish. He says, come here, Snacks. Now his commands uh, go things like, dame la mano, which means give me your hand, and... Siéntate, which means sit down. (laughs) Well, this man has made multiple videos as he's learned new Spanish commands. He now says that he's a bien boy, a good boy, and he's a very spoiled English-Spanish bulldog. He's a blessing, he said. So something to think about. If you find a stray or somebody gives you an animal that won't respond, maybe it's not a tearing. Maybe its owner had spoken another language. So... The guy figured it out, and now he has a Spanish-speaking dog, and he's speaking Spanish, too. I thought that was really cute. Uh, He's from the Southwest, by by the way, and a lot of Spanish-speaking people in the Southwest, so I guess maybe somebody lost him or something. Anyway, this man got him, and now they both speak Spanish. (laughs) Well, in New Zealand, there is a supermarket which is providing the locals with some much-needed dignity and self-respect. This is a new supermarket idea that's helping food insecure people in a new and innovative way. That's a new term now for the hungry, is food insecure. And this new supermarket opened in Wellington, New Zealand, March this year. And while it has the look and the feel of a regular supermarket, and it does indeed, there's photographs of it on the net, something about this store is very different For one thing, there are no prices on the items because all the food is free. Now, this new market is actually a food bank. It's a change from the traditional food bank model that gives uh, ready-made food boxes to the hungry because this one gives people the dignity of being able to choose their own food instead. Now, this food pantry supermarket is a joint project that was created not only by a charity mission, but a major New Zealand supermarket chain that helps anyone in need who resides in the the Wellington region, in New Zealand, excuse me. So a service worker working for this company said, 
we wanted to make a positive change in our food bank model. So when we started to develop the social supermarket concept, we asked the major food source chain for their help, and they gave it. And in this case, in the States, people have to fill out a lot of paperwork to get assistance and so on. But in New Zealand, around Wellington, people don't have to provide proof that they're in need to shop at the supermarket. And there are social workers on hand to help shoppers, some of whom have never shopped in a supermarket before. Instead of prices, what do they do? Well, they grade the food by a point system, which then helps clients, they say, learn to manage a food budget. There are also ample bins around the store that hold necessities that do not require any points. They're completely free. And the store has everything you can find in a conventional supermarket. Because this partnered supermarket chain guided the design of the store, fitted the store with shelves, refrigeration units, vegetable racks, displays, checkout aisles, and shopping carts. Looks just like a big store. The collaborator said that it was really important to make the social market have an authentic supermarket. Uh, they want people to have an authentic supermarket experience because people are already experiencing the hardship of financial stress and food insecurity. A spokesman said, this is a very good point, he said, many of us go to the supermarket, buy our shopping, and go home. Very seldom would we even think about the gift of just being able to do that. I think the uniqueness of our project is that the efforts we make to make this look like a regular store because we're genuinely trying to provide a normal, lovely experience for people experiencing hard times. Aww. Give people a chance to actually go into a market like everyone else and pick out their own groceries, which is, isn't that nice? That's just that is so helping them to feel equivalent great. and equal and a lot of people like to shop at grocery stores. They enjoy the colors and the, you know, the bounty and the feeling of response, you know, just getting what you want. It's a big part of a lot of people's lives, and people that are in food lines don't get that. They get a cardboard box. They're happy to have the, the food, but it's a very thoughtful and very, I think, evolved approach that they're doing there in Wellington, and I wanted to share that story with you. And, you know, this thing came about because some people with heart and thought and caring uh, put their talents to use to create a new model of doing things. So I really support that. I think it's lovely. Well, in science news, we have lots of stories tonight, so I better move along. Um, I want to share this with you just because it's information, and I think you should know about it. There is a neutron surge at Chernobyl. They say it could lead to a runaway nuclear reaction. It could. That doesn't mean it's going to. Scientists are now monitoring a surge in fission reactions in the ruins of the infamous Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine. According to an initial report from new scientists, there has been a spike in nuclear reactions hidden in an un inaccessible chamber of this complex. As of this writing, the article that was just written a couple of days ago, scientists are evaluating the problem to ensure the reaction will stabilize, as it could lead to a runaway nuclear reaction, and that would be deeply concerning, an understatement. They say, however, we don't yet know which way the reaction will go, and as such, scientists are telling the public there's no cause for worry. But they aren't, you know, they're not, they're, there is cause for worry, but they aren't sounding the alarms just yet. So they're keeping an eye on it. And in NASA, we have news. This is pretty important in space news. A NASA spacecraft called, uh, called OSIRIS-REx uh, collected samples from the asteroid Bennu, which was 200 million miles away from Earth, 
It has started its two-and-a-half-year journey back to our planet. It left yesterday on its way back home to Earth. This return to Earth departure date was chosen specifically because it coincided with the asteroid Bennu's closest alignment to the Earth as it travels through our solar system. And when it arrives back to Earth, they tell us it will reveal some of the solar system's oldest secrets. So they have gathered information from 200 million miles away, and they're bringing it back home. Wow. Wow. It's wild. What a time to be alive. And speaking of clean energy and nuclear stuff, uh, a U.K. firm, they say, is close to a 100 million degree fusion milestone. A hundred million degrees. That's right. A United Kingdom nuclear fusion firm said it will soon be the first private company to achieve 100 million degree plasma temperature in a big step, they say, for commercial fusion energy. They revealed pictures of the plasma in its recently upgraded spherical tokamak in March. So this is right on cutting edge at the moment. The company, whose fusion energy machine rose to higher temperatures than the center of the sun in 2018, aims to achieve fusion temperatures of 100 million degrees sometime in the next few months. Now, what they tell us is that fusion reaction technology forms a part of the U.K. government's 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution. And the U.K. recently announced it was looking for land on which to build its first nuclear fusion power station. The U.S., meanwhile, revealed its own plans to open a nuclear fusion power plant by the 2040s. And therein might be some of the reasoning behind uh, the elimination of gas, oil, and coal. They are posturing nuclear power to take its place. Well, Voyager 1, y'all remember Voyager 1? Let's talk about that. NASA sent a probe in 1977 named Voyager 1. Did you know it's still alive and well? Wow. In the vast expanse of interstellar space, Voyager 1 is humming along. Guess what? It's been exploring the galaxy, returning its findings to Earth all this time. The spacecraft has now moved far beyond the heliopause, which is the invisible shield that marks our solar system's border with the rest of the galaxy. And out there, in the interstellar medium, Voyager 1's instruments have detected the droning hum of interstellar gas. The plasma waves that move through a region of space far beyond what we can imagine. This is according to a new study, which was published in the journal Nature Astronomy. New data slowly returned from Voyager's one position more than 14 billion miles away has revealed this new discovery of a a very peculiar interstellar emission. They say it's very faint and monotone because it is is in a narrow frequency bandwidth, according to an astronomer at Cornell, who is a part of this study. The person said, we're detecting the faint, persistent hum of interstellar gas. This discovery can help scientists comprehend how the interstellar medium interacts with our solar wind and how the solar system's heliosphere, which is a type of protective shield, is reshaped and modified by the environment of deep space. Wow. Wow. Awesome. Amazing. You know, we could do 
three weeks of nothing but science news. It would make your hair stand on end, folks. There is so much going on out there. Let's talk about society. Um, society news. In Minnesota, in a warehouse in Minneapolis, an amazing transformation is taking place. There is a village of indoor tiny homes being built to give shelter to the homeless. But this village is inside of a building. These are shelters within a shelter, and they're being made to help people by providing traditional housing and transitional housing, while social activists help them through recovery, mental health services, education, and job training. The first 16 residents moved in the end of the year in 2020 in December. Now, each home has a door with a lock, and there's a double secure entry to keep all the residents safe. Each tiny home inside this huge warehouse has four walls, a ceiling, a roof, and furnishings, so it really feels like a home and not a homeless shelter. This little indoor village is also pet-friendly so that people can keep their fur babies right next to them. They deliver prepackaged microwavable meals daily, and there are bathroom facilities as well as the free use of washers and dryers. Now, the village is meant to be temporary transitional housing, and the goal is to connect people with a housing case manager so they'll be helped to find permanent housing as quickly as possible. Now, the inspiration for this idea, which is unique, the idea for a shelter within a shelter, came from people living outdoors in the frigid Minnesota weather. Many people were living in encampments or parking lots. About half of them, they tell us, were Native Americans, so the tiny homes are painted in the colors of the medicine wheel, red, yellow, green, and blue. Now, one resident that was living outdoors in a tent said, it feels good not to have to make sure that the stakes are down in the ground when the tent starts to float. Just think about that, guys. So all of the residents were referred to the village by local street outreach workers, And when fully operational, there will be 100 residents in the tiny homes. You know, wow, it makes me feel so good. Those really gifted, talented, caring people are out there making a difference. It's just awesome. Well, here's a story for you guys. Your ears are going to perk up at this one. Talk about a starseed child. She's starting college at age 12 with plans to be a NASA engineer. This girl. Now, we all know that over the course of the pandemic, the landscape of education has drastically changed. But that hasn't kept one brilliant girl whose dreams have never been earthbound from reaching for the stars. While most preteens are navigating the challenges of middle school, at age 12, this young girl named Alina has already earned her high school diploma and is set to attend Aristotle State University by remote learning, uh, actually, this month. With a planned double major, now she's 12 years old, with a planned double major in astronomy and planetary science and chemistry, Alina's goal is to become a NASA engineer by the time she's 16, where she hopes to employ her extraordinary skills to build rovers, like the one sent to Mars on missions. And she further said, I'll be driving one of those future space mobiles by the time I graduate college. Wow. A goal, perhaps. But according to Alina's mom, her daughter had already set her sights on a career with the space agency when she was even a smaller child. The mother said, 
she would always say, Mommy, I'm going to work for NASA. Then she would start saying, I'm going to be the youngest black girl to ever work for NASA. You just watch me. And by the way, this is a black child. Now, Alina's space odyssey began with her early passion for Lego building toys, from which she's built intricate models of everything from, listen to this, the Taj Mahal, the Disney Castle, the Millennium Falcon, to the Apollo 11 rover, and a NASA rocket. Wow. Wow. All right, let's continue on with talking about creativity and energy and genius. There is a wave energy machine. Sounds so spacey, doesn't it? A wave energy machine is part of Scotland's plan to fight climate change. Well, wave energy, come to find out, has a huge potential to help move our economies toward a post-carbon future. But progress around the world to bring the appropriate technologies to a commercial scale have certainly been slow. But in Scotland, it's very different. They are going for it. Now, Scotland is home to many islands and tidal currents, as you well know, and the country has been investing heavily in tidal energy technologies, all in a bid to bring the country closer to its climate goals. Now, a recently unveiled wave energy harvesting prototype is now expected to further enhance their efforts. They call this machine the Blue X. It weighs 38 metric tons and measures 20 meters in length. It was developed by this uh, wave power and will soon be deployed for trials. If the trials go according to their plans, the machine will eventually be connected to an underwater battery that will be used to power remote-controlled underwater vehicles. Scotland has some of the world's most ambitious climate targets, aiming to reduce its carbon emissions by 75% in 2030, a target that the country is likely to achieve, given that in 2020 alone, it managed to supply 97% of its electricity demand with renewables. And as part of its climate change plan, Scotland is supporting projects like Blue X to achieve net zero emissions by 2045. Now, Scotland is a much smaller country than the United States, and so it would be a bit simpler for them to receive their 90% uh, renewable electricity. But nevertheless, doesn't necessarily excuse us. I mean, there's so much more we can do, and some of these unknown countries or seldom thought of countries are moving way ahead of us and going for it, and they're actually succeeding. It's really inspiring. Now, let's talk about another brilliant child who's 10 years old. His name is Tani, and he has gone from being a 7-year-old living in a homeless shelter to a national chess master. Let me tell you about his beginnings. This 10-year-old Tani, well, his family fled Nigeria a couple of years ago when their lives were threatened and they settled in New York where the family was given temporary housing in a homeless shelter located above a hotel. Well, now, Teddy and his brother enrolled in a public school that happened to have an active chess club, and he wanted to join. When his mother told the coaches they were living in a shelter and couldn't pay the $330 fee, the school waived the fee. Come to find out, this boy made headlines when he won the New York State Chess Championship at the age of eight after only a year of practicing. Well, eight years old, chess champion, the 
the coach, his chess coach, decided to do something to further this boy's welfare. So he set up a GoFundMe account, and that got his family into an apartment and out of a homeless shelter. They raised more than, get this, $250,000 within 10 days. And wow. an anonymous donor offered to pay their rent on an apartment for one year. Now, this month, this boy's a fifth grader. He cruised through an in-person chess tournament in Connecticut Open to advanced players of all ages. We're talking adults here, experienced chess masters. He won every game. He emerged with a chess rating of 22-23, making him a national chess master. But that's not good enough for this little boy. He says, I want to be the youngest grandmaster. I want to have it when I'm 11 or 12. Well, just so you all know, it's not unprecedented. There is a history of the current youngest person ever to become grandmaster of chess received that honor at the age of 12. But Tanai's goal is not all that improbable. He's young enough and he can do it. The world is watching, so we'll see what happens. Amazing story. So many bright children coming into the uh, the world stage. It's just this just scratches the surface, but amazing. Gives me hope for the future. Should give it to you too. And I want to share a wonderful quote with you that Tanny inspired in some of the other stories today about these bright kids. Here it is: Success occurs when your dreams are bigger than your excuses. Success occurs when your dreams are bigger than your excuses. Wow, just think about that. I like that. No excuses. Make your dreams big enough. And there it is. That's the star that's the star seed charge for this week, next couple of weeks. All of you make your dreams bigger than your excuses and go for it. Every one of you out there listening to this broadcast has so much to offer the world. Bless your hearts and souls. It's such a time to be alive. So from my heart to each one of you, much love, everybody. Have a beautiful couple of weeks. And thank you, Arielle, for being allowing me to be with you. Oh, it's always a pleasure, and you do a great job. And we will be back in two weeks. Um, we're going to Arkansas uh, this in a couple of days here. Uh, but we'll be back um, two weeks from tonight with another great show. Great, great. And we'll talk to you then. All righty. Night. Okay, thanks, Anastasia. Good night. Okay, so now I'm going to get Lavendar's mic open and our guest, Brian Power. Get your mic open. All right. Okay. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Well, it's nice to talk to you again. And Lavendar, um, are you ready to go? Lavendar, is is your mute button on? I think oh, the mute yeah, button is on. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I got it. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I was, just, I was just talking along and nobody could hear me. Okay, so Brian. <laughs> yeah. So Brian, <clears throat> I, am, I am so glad that you're our guest tonight, and I want to tell you what's happened since uh, you were on the show. I have talked to I don't know how many clients over the, the past couple of years, and almost every one of them, I would give them the title of your book. I have four different books that I that I reference when I talk to clients about Starseed, and I kind of find out what they're interested in. And when uh-huh. I find out that a person's interested in either Native American or in Atlantis or Antarctica, 
when they when they mention those subject matters, I always mention your book. Oh, that's great. I got the trifecta there. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm wondering, uh, did did it increase in sales for you this past couple of years? Yes, it has. Uh, I have uh, seen um, 18 months of continuous sales. Uh, now, again, it's not you know runaway bestseller stuff, but uh, I am uh, the word's getting out and people are buying the book. Yeah, well, good. Well, the minute I read it, I said, "Oh, not only not only is this something I want to share with our Starseed audience, we need to find somebody in Hollywood to make this movie." Oh, from your lips to God's ears. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so let me just ask you a couple of questions as we start. Where, where do you live now? And, I live in Rhode Island. You live in Rhode Island. Yeah, and, I'm a New uh, Englander uh, by birth, and I've uh, traveled around a lot, and we ended up settling here back in the 80s. And uh, it's, uh, it's it's a great Great state. I mean, uh, its climate is wonderful. It doesn't get too bad in the winter, uh, and it gets lovely in the spring and summer and fall. So uh, it's a good place to be. So what inspired you to become a writer rather than something like a neurosurgeon? (laughs) Well, (laughs) um, uh, first of all, I'm not smart enough to be a neurosurgeon uh, or a lawyer or anything else that requires a lot of academic smarts. Uh, I had spent my adult life uh, being a Marine officer, a corporate lackey, a corporate outplacement consultant, an amateur baseball player, a corporate consultant and trainer, a high school teacher, and a bad guitarist. Uh, It suddenly hit me that I I had a great story to tell, and I drew from all these childhood and adult experiences, and it all started flowing. It it all started really – I mean, I had made a few false starts uh, as I was doing my other professions. But it was when I finally retired, and all of a sudden, everything just started coming together. And I started writing and writing and writing, and it was just the most fun experience. And, I, and all these things started coming together. So Song of Atlantis is, is full of unusual ideas and situations. And where did you get the idea for the book? Well, it was a combination of things. Um, I had read uh, Graham Hancock and... Uh, um, uh, uh, what's his name, Dunn, uh, was it William Dunn, uh, about uh, their stuff about the Great Pyramid. And I read that back in the 90s, and I was just so impressed by it. I thought, this is really great. And you know, But their target audience was uh, probably more of the, you know, the kind of the, you know, maybe the, I don't mean, that, I don't mean this negatively, but more of the nerd type. And I thought, well, gee, I'd love to get this story out to a, a more mainstream audience. You know, because the idea that the pyramid was a living uh, uh, a machine that produced energy, uh, and Dunn made a great case for that. And uh, and then I had all these other things going through my head. Uh, Gordon Tallbear was inspired by a, a something I read in a comic book when I was a kid, and uh, and all of a sudden he just kind of sprung to life. And uh, uh, and Joanna's modeled on my wife, and uh, but also uh, she's got a lot of my relatives in there uh, from uh, the Norwich, Connecticut area, and yeah, you know, so it's just one of those things that everything just started flowing. And um, uh, one of my uh, favorite character actors is a guy named uh, Jason Isaacs. He's a Brit, uh, and he has been in a number of things. You probably remember him if you ever saw the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson. Uh, he played the uh, Isaacs played the evil lieutenant colonel. Uh, well, my uh, 
uh, Sir Winslow Harrington in my book was modeled exactly on uh, Jason Isaac's character. So I, I do that type of thing. It's just started grabbing from all over the place and molding and shaping and, you know, throwing out a bunch of words and then throwing a bunch of them away and starting over. Um, and uh, that's kind of how the book came about. You know, as I was reading this book, there's one thing that stood out in my mind every time I think about this book, and that's when you describe the moving picture show that you found on on the walls. I think it was in Antarctica. Can you right. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I thought that, well, it, you know, we've discovered these caves down there, and, uh, you know, they're heated, and there was this advanced civilization down there, and there's all these pictures on the walls. And, uh, and I thought, well, gee, I need somebody to unlock their secrets. So I created, uh, I think it was the character Brendan, um, who, uh, Brendan Pell, who uh, was the uh, musicologist and artist, and he, uh, uh, he went down there and figured it out and started pressing buttons. And all of a sudden we started seeing that now here is the, uh, the unfolding uh, of how the pyramid was built and how all these other I, of course, didn't get into all the other things, but I, I, you know, I, you know, was thinking that, well, this is how all the other phenomena that we're always guessing about, you know, that there's a time lapse that, you know, how do you move all this big stuff and create something like that? And, um, and the idea of it being done with, uh, uh, handheld devices that can cut, that can lift, uh, that can also be used as communications devices. Um, I thought, why not? You know, <laughs> uh, so it just uh, it just started flowing, and that's that's kind of how I got it. I started piecing it all together. Speaking about the artwork, tell us a little bit about the artwork in the headquarters building at the Denver Center. Right, that was the um, oh god, now I'm going to going to draw a blank on the artist, but it was uh, Gordon Tallbear was impressed by this because these were four paintings that were done by a famous American artist. Uh, and uh, they depict the, um, the, the the flow of life and the adventure of life uh, from a boy to a man, uh, and it's uh, it's a very moving piece. If you if you ever get a chance to get to the National Gallery in Washington, uh, the pictures are there, and uh, you know the originals are there. And I don't think there are copies for my book. I made copies and put them in the Denver Center because I figured that you know Madison Tolls could afford to buy copies of them, and. Uh, uh, you know, but they were the type of thing that uh, would take uh, a, a man of uh, Gordon Tallbear's uh, sensitivities and intelligence, and he could look at something like that and he could be moved by it. And I thought it was important that he, that my character be be able to be be moved by art, um, that he's able to be moved by nature, he's able to be moved by history. Uh, you know, those, those, that was an important uh, development in his character. So tell us a little bit about your Mustang therapy program at Pine Ridge Reservation and how you incorporated that with Tall Bear's talent. Yeah, that was. Uh, there's a number of these programs that have been going on independently around the country. We've got a couple of them here in Rhode Island. And uh, what they do is they're used for uh, rehabilitation. Here in Rhode Island, they're used mainly for um, therapy for uh, uh, disabled children, disabled adults, uh, post-traumatic stress uh, people, uh, you know, uh, veterans, uh, and they'll get out and they'll work with a horse, and they will care for that horse, and they bond with it, and the horse understands, and the horse, uh, you know, uh, also lets them ride them, and uh, 
And out in the West, there have been isolated cases where they've been doing this with um, uh, prisoners uh, that are approaching parole and uh, or approaching release from prison. And it's kind of a transition program that they have to work with a horse and they have to you know, feed it. They have to groom it. They have to uh, care for it, clean up after it. Uh, and they have to learn how to ride it. And they end up developing such a bond with these animals that, uh, that they're that they don't regress and go back to their criminal life. Uh, in most of the cases where these therapy programs are, you have something like an 83% uh, uh, cure rate and success rate of people that are, are doing it. So I thought, well, gee, now why not expand this uh, and let the, uh, the, you know, the, let the Indians of Pine Ridge run a major program like this because they're, they suffer from uh, you know, all of this, uh, you know, the horrors of, of Indian reservation life, you know, the alcohol, the drug abuse, the despair. Uh, and this would be a great therapy program. And I, of course, created, uh, uh, made Gordon's father a, a, uh, a psychiatrist, uh, you know, who would uh, run the program. But it's a, uh, that type of therapy is a very real therapy, and it does work. And I did a kind of a wishful thinking in the book to say that this is now expanded. It's been blessed by uh, uh, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration in Washington, as well as the Department of the Interior and the Bureau of Indian Affairs and everybody else. Uh, it frankly should be, uh, and uh, because it's a, it's a very, very good program. Have you noticed that a lot of information is coming out now about Antarctica, about um, a lot of things that have been hidden? Have you found some new information that maybe our, our listeners would uh, be privy to through you? Is there something new you'd like to tell us that's happening in Antarctica that you found out from other sources? Well, actually, I wish I could say yes, uh, but there, is, there, there are so many things. And I've been reading all these little articles that show, oh, you know, this ice shelf, uh, you know, has melted away or slid away, and, and it's, you know, you know, we're seeing more of the land. And I'm waiting to see uh, the evidence that there had been buildings there. You know, I think that, um, you know, I'm just kind of hoping on that because I, uh, you know, I, I figure that, you know, all of this stuff that we talk about, whether it's the pyramids in Egypt, whether it's the Sphinx, whether it's the all the things on the the high plains of the Andes. Uh, those amazing structures that are that are there. Who built these things? Uh, they had to be somebody that, you know, because, you know, when you look at the um, at the pyramids in Egypt, for example, um, not taking anything away from the Egyptians, but the thing is, at the time the pyramids were built, the Egyptian people did not have the technology to build it. Uh, they didn't have the tools to cut granite to that precision. They didn't have tools to cut granite. Period. Uh, not to mention, you know, lifting 27-ton beams that are precision cut and uh, and fine-tuned to the key of A. Uh, you know, it's like uh, somebody else had to have a hand in this. And uh, the only sensible answer is that there was an advanced civilization from before. At least that's the way I look at it. Um, it could be wishful thinking, but I really think it's true. You know, as I was reading your book and I was reading, you know, the, the main character, Gordon Tallbear, I really felt like that was you. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. So I did. Well, I think that I, every author does that. When you write a hero, you're saying, this is, this is the guy I wish I was, you know? Um, oh, but, I, but it wasn't so much about the hero part. It was, about, it was about how authentic you were in describing everything about him. It's, it's like you were looking through 
either his eyes, your eyes, or both eyes. I don't know. I just felt like that you had tapped in to some amazing frequencies from either past life remembrance or ancestral bloodline or both. I don't know. I just kind of I felt like that what was happening as I was reading it. Had anybody else ever said that to you? No, not in, not in so many words, but I, I appreciate what you're saying because I, uh, I felt blessed when I was writing him. Uh, you know, and he just came to life, and I, um, and the more I wrote about him, the more I wanted to write. And uh, uh, you know, I wanted him to have, um, you know, uh, I wanted him to have pain as well as success in his life. So I, you know, that's why I had uh, his prior marriage ending so tragically. Uh, and him going off in despair. And I borrowed some of that from other literature as well. Um, uh, the Razor's Edge, uh, Larry Darrow is the main character and who uh, has a profound experience of World War One, and he ends up, instead of marrying the heiress back in Chicago that he could have married, he ends up going off to uh, an ashram in, uh, in India uh, to find himself. You know, it's, um, So I, I kind of borrowed some of that for, for Gordon, uh, but I... Um, I, I just uh, I, I ended up falling in love with his character. I just thought, you know, this is this is the guy. And I had read also a wonderful biography on Crazy Horse uh, called uh, uh, Crazy Horse: Strange Man of the Oglalas. It's by a woman by Mary Sandoz is her name. M A R I S A N D O Z. It's an older book. It may not be in print. You might have to go to the uh, Native the, uh, the American Indian uh, Museum in, in Washington to get it. But um, you know, he uh, Crazy Horse was an absolutely amazing real life character who did everything he could for his people, and uh, and he was also an amazing warrior. You know, so I needed to have a modern warrior uh, who could have the same type of vision that Crazy Horse had had, uh, but also would uh, be fighting a different kind of battle, uh, but also was a uh, stud athlete too. You know. Uh, uh, and one of my favorite chapters, of course, was the chapter on Polo, where he wipes up uh, um, Winslow Harrington. Uh, but that, uh, yeah, I loved writing about uh, Gordon. He just, uh, and there were times when I was writing about him that I was going, oh, I didn't know he was going to do that. It was like, it was like an out-of-body experience. It was so strange. I, I just loved writing him. Well, it was called Out, out of Your Body. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was, out, it was out of your body experience. I really, I feel strongly that that you started a story, but I think that you tapped into some kind of frequency from, um, well, it's like past, present, future all at once, if that yeah. makes any sense. And, yeah, and I, I, I felt that as I was writing. There were times when it just kept flowing and flowing and flowing, and uh and it was, you know, it, it, and of course, I, I was, I'm the kind of person that I write from 11 o'clock at night till two in the morning, <laughs> no distractions, the house is quiet. Um, and, uh, and that is just where I can kind of let my brain go free. And uh, uh, it was, uh, I had some wonderful times uh, writing this story uh, because uh, everything started coming alive and it started and it started going in places I wasn't even sure I wanted to go. But all of a sudden I said, wait a minute, it, it is going there. That makes sense, yeah. And, and that's, that's the, the strangest thing. That, that's why I meant it was, you know, it was so out of body. It was just unnatural. But it was good. Yeah. So um, 
you know, we live here in Arkansas, and we do uh, Starseed Quest here, and it's on really um, uh, heavy Indian land here. The Tulas lived here, and there's mm-hmm. great stories about it. And at some point in time, I really hope that you come and visit us here in Arkansas. I think there's another book to be written after you come here. I really do. <laughs> We've talked well, I've had so many had... people have said, when are you going to do the sequel? And yeah. I'm going, I don't know what I can do in a sequel, you know. Um, uh, you know, Gordon does so much in in this first book that I, know, I don't know that I can bring him back. And I'm not sure I want to. I, I think it's almost, I almost want to leave him out there as the mystery as to what happened well, to him. Well, and uh, you, but I think there's room for uh, another book, which would include a lot about uh, the Native Americans. Um, I'm fascinated. Well, maybe, maybe yeah. you could write about his children or, or or his ancestors. I mean, you're hooked into a wonderful story, and I, and I don't see it ending. Oh, thank you. I I, I, would, I hope so. I I would. Uh, I'd like to. I thought about doing something with the, his children. Um, and uh, yes. Uh, you know, so I thought that uh, Joanna would give birth to twins, and uh, you know, then we would uh, uh, move it on from there. And uh, you know, I, I was thinking about that. That would have been fun. Yeah, that'd be great. So, well, how did you come up with the title "Song of Atlantis"? What was well, what that was another uh, thing that had been going around in my brain for years and years and years. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm an amateur musician. I play the guitar, uh, and um, you know, and music has always fascinated me. And I read a wonderful book by uh, uh, Dr. Oliver Sacks uh, called Musicophilia. And uh, it was all about patients that he treated or became aware of who had developed a gift for music when they had prior had, had done. They'd had like a traffic accident. There was a dentist in Baltimore, for example, had a traffic accident. He had not been a musician. He was in his 40s. And he comes out of... Uh, you know, his his, uh, his coma, he was in the coma for like three days, he comes out of it, um, and the next thing you know is that he's writing music like crazy, and he's, you know, he, he, and, and, he, and he becomes a concert pianist and started doing tours. It was like, duh, you know, what is it about music? And, uh, and, and Sachs said that 99% of all human beings are in one way or another hardwired for music. And so it could be just that Oh, I like turning on the radio and listening to my favorite music, uh, or I love getting up and dancing, or I love playing my uh, my instrument, or I am really out there in in uh, in Eric Clapton territory of being a master of of my uh, of my instrument, um, and uh, you know, or I'm I'm, I'm composing like uh, like Beethoven, you know. So there are there's a full range of spectrum uh, on the musical scale as it were, forgive me, but uh, it's, music is out there, and um, Aaron Copland, the famous composer, American composer, was asked one time, he said, uh, somebody, an interviewer said, uh, is there a meaning to music? And he said, yes. And the interviewer said, well, if you, you know, could describe in so many words, what is that meaning? And he said, I can't do it. So it's like, you know, nobody understands fully why we have music. You know, we have it. The whales have it. Uh, you know, um, dolphins have it. You know, what is it about music 
that is is uh, is the big thing for human beings. And I thought, well, maybe this advanced civilization really had that was maybe the way they communicated. Maybe that was the foundation of their whole technology. Because if you take a, a look at the sound spectrum, it goes all the way down to below our level, you know, down to the whales, and it goes all the way up through our level, past that into the, where dogs can hear it, and then it goes on up and it becomes color. And I mentioned in the book that 23% of human beings, when they hear music, they hear they see color. Now, why is that? So there's a, a music color connection. And then if you take that all the way up further, why not turn music and color into some sort of energy that you can use for a practical purpose, like cutting stones or lifting them or moving them? Um, so I just kind of let my imagination go on that one. Uh, but I believe that music is a, uh, that is a, a powerful, powerful thing in all of us. Uh, and they've discovered, of course, in the hospitals that you, music therapy is, it, it, it aids the healing process. Uh, why is that? You know, why is that? Um, it's harmonics. You know, I, it's all, it's all about harmonics. Harmonics yeah. are frequency. Yeah. The frequency of harmonics. Yes, I I love that you say that it goes into color because that's true. That's very yeah. true. You said, yeah, wow. Yeah, and I, I, had, I had happened to have read uh, it was a, an op-ed piece in our our paper about a couple of years before I actually wrote about it. But it was one of the this guy that once a month he would do a a very interesting piece, just non-political. He's always about something very interesting, and he talked about. Uh, the arrival of the pointillist movement in uh, in art, and which which you know came sprung up in France, but it started actually with uh, the French textile industry, where they discovered some some guy discovered that if you lay three colors next to each other, they appear to be a different color than if you look at them individually, and that kind of gave birth to the pointillist painting thing. So you look at a a Monet. Uh, or a, a Surat or a, a number of others, and you see all these dots of of of, point, of, uh, of color, and, but they you step away from it, and all of a sudden, oh, it becomes this gorgeous picture of a, a beautiful tree, uh, you know. And, but you know, you get up close to it, and it's just all these dots. And I just was fascinated by that, so I worked that into the story uh, that you know both the color and the. Uh, and the idea that you hear two notes together and your mind's eye hears a third. Your mind's ear hears a third. Um, it's a fascinating thing. Wow. You're right on to something. Every time you talk, I, I, I'm tracking, you know, your next book. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, so we'll see. I'm not sure where it's going to go. I know I've, I've been working on a couple of other things, uh, but, uh, you know, is. uh Oh, yeah, totally unrelated. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a, I'm just getting ready to publish a, uh, um, a memoir about my Marine Corps experiences. I had uh, five years active duty and another 20 years in the reserves, and uh, uh, in both enlisted and officer experience. And I thought, well, I'll just write this stuff down. And over the years, I've put together this whole thing, and I said, I'm going to publish it. So. That's coming out in about a month, and I'm working on another thing about baseball. So what I need to do is I need to get back to Song of Atlantis and say I need to spring something off of that and, and do, do some more writing in that vein because I enjoyed it so much. It was so much fun. Right. Let me ask you, um, 
it, if you could spend a day with any author, living or dead, whom would it be and why? Well, I think uh, Douglas Adams would be one. Uh, he wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the the unlikely five-part trilogy that he wrote. Uh, that was the most absurd and funny uh, and delightful uh, bit of writing that I think I've ever encountered. And I'd like to spend some time and talk to him. But my favorite author of all time is uh, Charles Dickens. Uh, he could describe characters in such a way. And, that, and that, I tried to model myself on that. I said, I wanted, those, I wanted my characters to be something you could visualize. So you could see Gordon. You could see Joanna. You could see Chuck. You could see... Uh, 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 you know, uh, Winslow Harrington. Uh, uh, you, know, uh, I, you know, I wanted the, these people to be so visual, and I learned that from all the reading I did on Dickens. I've read uh, all of this, almost all of this stuff, and I've read David Copperfield over probably fifteen times. Uh, but I would love to spend time in talking with him. Uh, okay. You know, he just uh, he could make something come alive, and he had well, that wonderful way to use humor uh, at the same time. Well, you, you have borrowed all of that because in your book, it's like I was looking through your eyes and seeing all the pictures. See, you showed us instead of telling us, and that's, that's the mark of a wonderful author is to be able to show and not tell, and that's exactly what it is. Thank you. That was one of the best bits of advice I got early on in the process. I had written about 50 pages, and I gave it to a friend of mine who's also a writer, and and he gave it back to me with, with a handout that he had that he had gotten from a, a writing seminar. And he said, I want you to read this. And it was the, the, the articles all about uh, don't tell me, show me. And it was you know, how to do your writing so that you're actually describing something, you're enriching it so that you can see place, you can see person, you can see uh, the atmosphere. Um, and that, you know, that makes, I, once I had that, I started throwing stuff out that I had been writing and started rewriting, uh, and going in. And, uh, and I had a, uh, I hired an editor, uh, who's a woman who uh, teaches English at one of the local universities. And she, uh, she looked through it and she liked this one piece I did so much that she uses it, uh, when she teaches her creative writing course. And I thought, well, that, that's that's a, a real tribute. I mean, that 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 made me feel so good that I could write something so descriptive that people really like it, you know, and they can right. see what's there. Well, I, I'm I'm talking to my audience, which is all over the world, and I'm saying, please, you need to get "Song of Atlantis" by Brian Power because it will enrich your life. It will give you a new heads up about things that are coming in the future because he writes in such a way that you can travel the uh, etheric highway of his knowledge, and it's absolutely wonderful. So at this time, I'd like to pass you over to my co-host, Arielle, as she has the, the switchboard. And maybe we have some people that are listening tonight that have already read your book. We have a lot of starseeds that have bought your book. I know I, I get emails from them that tell me that. So I'm hoping that they saw the announcement and knew that you were going to come on. So anytime you want to come on with anything that you want to tell us, you always are welcome to come on our and be our guest on our show. Know that. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoy it. And I want you to come and visit us in Arkansas because we've got a lot here to show you about Atlantis, about the crystals, about a lot of things that would really inspire you for your next book. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Okay, so back to you, Ariel. <laughs> 
Okay. Wow. <laughs> you've, you've covered so much um, territory here in just a few minutes. Um, too, too much? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, it's just uh, I'm, I'm, the one thing that you had said when you were talking about the pyramid, um, and how do you think that it was actually built? I imagine that it was uh, it was built along the lines of what I think I described in the book. I think it's not the sort of thing you can muscle six hundred thousand blocks, uh, most of them weighing two tons, and some of them weighing as much as twenty seven tons. I'm not sure you can do that with brute you know labor. Uh, it would it would take God knows how many years and how many people to do something like that and to do it with that kind of precision. Um, so I am convinced that I think that the, that that structure is older than we uh, are giving it credit for. Everybody says, "Oh, it's built between 25 and 2900 BC for the Pharaoh Khufu." Uh, for the Pharaoh Khufu, I don't think so. I think it was built, uh, uh, you know, thousands of years before that by an advanced civilization that left uh, that left it as a marker. I mean, the precision with which that is laid out is it defies anything that's reasonable. We can't build, we couldn't build a skyscraper with that type of precision today. The alignment to the to the poles and to the um, to the marks of the precession of the equinox is so precise. Uh, how did they do that back then? Uh, you know, and the fact that it also happens to be at the geographic center of all the land masses of the of the earth, if you blend them all together, dead center is Giza, and right there at the 30th parallel is the uh, is the the pyramid. That's no accident. Um, you know, so I am convinced that there was an advanced civilization that did it. I think it was for to create an energy, uh, you know, uh, machine with without any moving parts, but. Uh, that's just my theory. It could have maybe been used for, you know, I don't know, as a, just a general marker. I don't know. Uh, but uh, something to say we were here. I don't know. Uh, uh, well, um, I mean, certainly we've heard from a lot of sources, Lavendar included, that um, the Atlanteans were the, um, the root of the Egyptian civilization. As they, I believe so, you know, yeah. They sent them out, so and and they sent them all over the world in different places. Um, and there's pyramids, none none to the scale of the Great Pyramid, but there's a there's a big one in in Bosnia, um, you know, in, in Mexico, in, um, in South America. There's there's and these are, I mean, at the time that people postulate that they were built, um, these people had no knowledge of each other. So there had to and be, what's amazing uh, is the precision with which everything is. Like you take a look at Central America and these these cities that they laid out. These are star maps. They are precise star maps that reflect constellations. How do they do that? Yeah, how do they figure that out when they didn't even have the wheel? You know, it's, um, right. right. Well, yeah. between between the Atlanteans and the ETs, um, I'm sure there was a lot more involvement. Than uh, than we have discovered to this point, or could prove. You know, I mean, you yeah. can't you can't prove it. Uh, I guess 
scientifically, but like you said, there's no way. I don't care how many you know um, human laborers you've got to 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 do that. The 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 math alone is is beyond what we could do today. Yeah, exactly, so, exactly. And one of the other little outside. side things that I found out was that the mortar that that joins the blocks of the pyramid together, uh, we figured out what it's made up of, but we can't reproduce it. So there's this mortar that holds every one of those stones to each other. And it, they had a chemical formula to do that back when. Um, you know, it's just, it's it's baffling. It's baffling, uh, you know, the, all these little mysteries that are hidden inside the pyramid. You know, the mathematics are staggering, you know. Right, yeah, the energy generation. Um, I heard some... I, I, Somewhere deep in my in my in my mind, I can't really pull the files up here, but that there is something underground below yeah. the Great Pyramid that is producing an energy that then that the pyramid can then amplify and um, intensify. Right, because in the Queen's Chamber you have two shafts, and uh, one of them we don't know exactly what's beyond it that it very conceivably could go to uh, a fuel source. So that when you when the, the fuel from that one source, and I forget what else, it, the, the two elements that were combined down that shaft into the queen's chamber, they started creating the chemical reaction that flowed down through the passageway up into the king's chamber uh, and, uh, and mixed with the hydrogen atoms there to, uh, to create uh, electricity. Um, it's... Uh, you know that they think that there was a actually a, like a fuel storage site um, uh, down right near the pyramids and accessible down through the pyramid, uh, but of course nobody nobody can go in and explore that. They they're kind of fussy about that now. So well, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. And on that, we had um, a man who the man who discovered the Bosnian pyramids, mm-hmm. um, Sam Osmanagic. Um, and he said that they measured the the negative ion density in the in that pyramid, and uh, I mean it was it was like in the tens of thousands, where you know normally it might be like eighteen or twenty. Um, <laughs> wow. You know, I mean, it, they uh, and that people have healing when they walk in there because of the the strength of those negative ions. And I'm wondering if the if the Giza pyramid also um, has that, or has it ever been studied or, or measured? Well, but, I yeah. know that, um, uh, and I said William Dunn earlier, and I was wrong, it's Christopher Dunn, uh, who wrote the Giza Power Plant. Uh, and he describes that, and he describes the, the discoloration on uh, the sides of the, cha- the walls of the chambers uh, as having been as a result of a chemical reaction. Uh, so I'm not sure about the ion part, if that has any application to Giza, but the fact that there had been a chemical reaction uh, inside the pyramid, uh, and uh, and he ascribes it to the part of the process of producing uh, energy that, out of, that would beam out of the shaft from the king's chamber uh, up high. Um, but it was uh, it's fascinating uh, stuff to think about that each of these pyramids maybe has its own little mystery. 
uh, you know, that they uh, and they might serve a different purpose. I know I've seen uh, some speculation that they were uh, communications devices around the planet. That you know, one pyramid could uh, was actually part of an electronic communications network. Uh, you know, from one pyramid to another. You know, um, I think you know it, it, what's really great about it is you can speculate and write a book and have fun with it, and nobody can say you're a liar. <laughs> it's like, well, right, right, right. You know, if, if it's it, it, you're you're theorizing, then uh, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, and there, you know, and and you know, I think you've really you're drawing on ancient soul knowledge that you've carried, you know, for millennia. I I felt that way many times uh, that you know all of a sudden, you know, for example, the whole idea of um, uh, music becoming uh, part of their uh, uh, their technology. Uh, I don't know where I got that from. Uh, that was, you know, because some of the other stuff I can say, oh, I remember this from something I read when I was a kid, or I remember this from something. That the whole bit about music becoming, uh, you know, being uh, the means of communication and the means of their entire technology. Um, I have no idea where that idea came from. So something I think channeled in me. As and as I mentioned, as I was writing the book, uh, I was finding the characters were taking me places that I really didn't think I was going to go. Um, so I think that there is kind of an out-of-body experience that you are, we are tapping into some other source uh, as we get inspired. And I think that um, I had a little touch of, of grace with that. And I can imagine this people like, uh, you know, Beethoven and, and uh, Mozart, you know, they must have been awash in it day in and day out. Um, you know that, that they were they were being blessed by something that said you know just let this stuff flow right through you and and it becomes great music. Um, perhaps Lennon and McCartney too, you know. But uh, it's uh, it, there's a, I think there is something to the idea that there's something beyond us that inspires us. Well, absolutely, I, I think I might have mentioned that the last time you were on that I've I've been a musician since um, I, I can remember. I was a year and a half old when I first fell in love with the piano. Ah. But, but, you know, I mean, music, I have said, um, I think the first first week I knew Lavendar, back in 91, I told her, I said, well, music is what math sounds like. Uh-huh. And I don't know where that came from, but it's all frequency. Yes, you know, it and, is. and the and the combinations of of the of the notes, the frequencies, the harmonics of those frequencies, um, you know, the overtone series, it goes up beyond what we can perceive, but mm-hmm. um, those those harmonics. Um, well, I mean, you're a guitar player, you know that if you've got five strings in tune and one string starts to slip, it will affect the strings on either side that were in tune. But Absolutely, like, yeah like a sympathetic vibration that, you know, if one starts to go off pitch, it's going to pull the other ones off. Mm-hmm. And the same, you know, with the harmonics, you know, yeah. and if you do that, you know, the, the harmonic thing on a guitar where you, you don't really touch the string, but you get right. that, you know, when you're tuning, you use those harmonics. Um, and you and get that little bell sound. Yeah, that's, uh, you know. yeah exactly. And, and oh. you can tell when they're not in tune, there's an oscillation. And then when mm-hmm. it goes like straight line, then it's perfectly harmonically in tune. 
So yeah, and that's that. It, and I, I mean, I, and I I'm say sure in the that book that you know, music equals mass equals energy. It's uh, uh, you know, it to me it's a very logical sequence to, to you know, music isn't just something we just like to listen to. It it has it has a greater, deeper purpose. You know, it inspires us. It uh, it moves us, and I think it also has a technological purpose. Um, so it's, um, you know, I'd love to see that. I'd love to see somebody smarter than me, you know, work work on that one. You know, yeah. uh, I'll share the yeah. Nobel with them. <laughs> you know, okay. Yeah. okay, I could have a have a speaker um, driving my car, <laughs> yeah. have the music converted to energy. Uh, well, that'd be cool. Yeah. But yeah, um, I, I just want to take a pause here for a second, and for anyone that's listening. If you have a question or comment for Brian, you'll need to, um, if you're already on the switchboard, just press 1. And if you're listening on the computer, then dial in on 917-889-8292, and um, we'll get you set and ready to ask your question to Brian. Um, Now, having said all that, we very rarely get callers um, on the live show because most people listen in the archives. But uh, I always like just put that out there. So, um, well, they can communicate with me through uh, the website songofatlantis.com. So, if they okay. did have a question, they could uh, go on the website and uh, uh, and then just uh, you know it'll it'll forward it right over to my email. So, well, cool. Yeah, yeah, you know what? And I'm 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 just I'm thinking that that music. I mean, harmonically, it can be divine, uplifting, inspiring, you know, powerful, all those things. But when you when you distort the harmonics, it can be destructive. Absolutely, yes. You know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, you could you could blow up a building if you had the right, you know, distorted frequency. Um, it, mm-hmm. So it's and that kind of off the subject, you know, when when uh, as a guitar player, I mean, you know about the the distortion box, the fuzz box, you know, oh, yeah. those effects that you put on guitars, you know, like uh, uh, the heavy metal bands. That that distortion of the harmonics that that gives you that real bitey guitar sound. Um, it also can incite people to riot. You think sure. about how many how many fights break out in bars when then there's heavy harmonic distortion, and that people don't understand. Yeah, I was living in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, in 1978 when Three Mile Island cooked off, and uh, it was a scary time. And all of the radio stations, all rock stations, country stations, easy listening stations, everybody went to classical music. And so it was like a five-day period, five or six-day period, while we were going through the crisis. That when you wanted to listen to your favorite rock station, you couldn't. You turned it on, and you were getting Mozart. Um, and it was, a, I think, a very good uh, programming decision on the part of, uh, uh, you know, the the uh, you know, the station owners and things like that, because it turned out that that had a calming effect on the population. You know, mm-hmm. that we we're we we're, you know, instead of being frantically listening to you know something as we we're under a lot of stress, you know, and you know. Uh, you know, instead of listening to some frantic rock and roll, uh, you know, we were actually listening, you know, we were, we were being calm. We were being calmed uh, by uh, some uh, very moderate uh, 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 sounds. And I think that, that that's the power of music. 
You know, it can soothe, it can heal, it can also incite, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, so it's it's got some amazing power. And uh, and I I just simply speculated that it was used for um, a technological good, uh, but that it also had a capability of being destructive. Uh, and uh, so that's one of the uh, one of the amazing things about music. And um, as you said, you know, if you you put the wrong combination of notes together, and uh, you know, people start getting antsy, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of the Mozart effect. Yes. There, there was. I read a book on that years ago, um, and there, and like the Mozart, uh, the piano etudes, um, mm-hmm. have yeah. uh, the the effect of increasing your spatial acuity, and they they did tests and um, and studies where like students were going to go and you know take a test at school, and they would have them listen to these uh, Mozart piano etudes, and they, they scored better because it, mm-hmm. it, it expanded the mind in a way where you could conceive things that, you know, what they call it spatial acuity. But, um, yeah, and, and actually, <laughs> um, when my sister-in-law was pregnant, I had her put the headphones on her stomach and play Mozart. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and I'll cool. tell you what, that child that child was speaking, writing um, earlier than is normal. Yeah, there's something to it. There really yeah. is. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, I mean, music can, uh, it can lift, it can, it can, you know, uh, it's cathartic. As yeah. well, you know, when you when you have a you know anxiety, that can it can help so much, and and I'm sure that at the you know in Atlantis, they were they were masters um, with with those concepts. And yeah, and that was why. And I, for some reason, I decided that that was going to be central to my story. Is the fact that they communicated in song. Uh, that was their language. That was see their the language of their. Uh, of the people, that was the language of the technology. That was the language of their their whole energy program. Um, you know that there's. Uh, I just believe that there is something to music that we just haven't fully grasped yet. We know we like it, but we can't figure out why. And it's uh, it's just kind of an interesting thing. Uh, you know, so I'm I'm uh, I'm. I remember in my own case, I had a. Uh, I went through a, a little health thing not long ago, and. Uh, uh, required some ongoing treatment. And every night before I went to bed, I listened for about 10, 15 minutes. I listened to some wonderful, peaceful music. Uh, you know, some wonderful, mainly it was guitar music, um, you know, by some masters, that, but just gentle, soothing, and it helped me get through it. You know, that's, um, you know, it's just one of those things that there's something special about music. And I think that, you know, we need to embrace it even more. Now it 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 does have a very, you know, a subtle, healing, calming, uplifting, inspirational um, quality to it. And if you think about ancient civilizations, you know, like the 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 uh, Neanderthal kind of cavemen. Mm. They had their they had their you know sing around the campfire, 
um, a lot of indigenous, you know, a lot of indigenous um, tribes all over the world. They've all got music, and they all believe that it comes from a supreme being. Yeah. That it's yeah. their connection. You know, um, you know the ancient uh, in monasteries. Ah. Mm. When we we went to France, we went in this big uh, building in a in a part of a castle, and they had these men singing the Gregorian chants. Oh yeah! With res- wow. With the resonance in there, and I, I mean it it does something to you. There's yeah. something about yeah. it that it evokes um, an ancient wisdom, um, a, a, a connection to the divine. Uh, it, you know, it's it's as mysterious as it is beautiful. Yeah, and, and it's and it's funny. And he, as you said, each culture uh, has a music foundation. You know, they they whether it's just a rhythmic drumming or whether it's pipes or other instruments that got uh, developed along the way. Uh, and um, you know, it was uh, uh, you know, it, it music is just a very it's a very special thing for humans, and we can't seem to break the code as to why it's special. We, we know it's special, but we don't know exactly why. You know, very, very interesting. Well, maybe if we did, it would it would lose something. <laughs> you yeah, know, that's good. The, the the mysterious, unexplainable um, uh, might. You know, I know that whenever I learned a song, you know, to to perform it, once I took it apart and figured out all the notes, um, some of the mystery was gone. Yeah, yeah it, that's it was, true. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, the Christmas present's open. That 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 excitement um, was over with. But, you know, think about the language and and the music of the culture. Um, have you, did you ever hear of Chick Corea? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, amazing um, piano player. and And his musical phrasing... Sounds a lot like his language, you know the 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 Spanish because it's the cadence. It was like it, to me, it just sounded like you know Spanish in music. Um, and most you know, of you said the same thing about uh, Santana. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. They have you know really fast, long phrases, um, mm-hmm. and and I'm sure that you could you know indigenous music across the world. You know, from India to uh, the Orient to um, Africa, and you know, all points in between, the music has a relationship to their language, and, yes. and I think in the cadence of it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, I mean, it, music and language is not um, not all that separate. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, it's um, you know the uh, I, I remember it. it I remember being so powerfully moved at different times when I was, saw different musicians live. And uh, I remember the first and probably the most powerful one was, I was a high school kid, and it was 1964, and I went to the uh, New York World's Fair, and I stopped by with one of the African pavilions, and there is this Babatundi Olatunji, uh, who is a master African drummer, and he and his group started doing their thing and I'm sitting there it was like I felt like I was lifted off the ground. It was just it was the most amazing, powerful thing and it was just percussion. 
I, I was going, holy crow, you know, it, this this is just yeah. amazing. You know? And then uh, I remember one of the most powerful performances I ever saw. My wife and I went to see uh, Segovia at the Kennedy Center. Uh, and this is back probably in, I would guess, late 70s, early 80s. And, uh, and he was already in his early 80s. And we're all sitting there, and here comes this elderly man in white tie and tails and a chair. And he's got this simple straight-back chair that he brings with him, and he's got a guitar in his hand. And he walks out the center stage, sets the chair down, sits down, and everybody says, you know, they're cheering like crazy. And he stops. The audience stops. He started to play this absolutely beautiful piece, and some jackass out in the audience coughed. And he stopped, and he just looked out into the darkness of the audience in the general direction of where that cough was. I think the guy melted through the floor. Uh, <laughs> and then he, without saying a word, he went back to the music, and he just lit the room up. He was, and he was in his early 80s. It was just, I never saw anything like it. Uh, and I got a chance to see... Uh, uh, Les Paul. Les Paul was 91 years old playing at the Iridium Club in New York City. And this is back in the, I think it was around 2010, 2009, something like that. Went down to see wow. him. And he was just unbelievable. It's just, and he and he had both hands. He had arthritis. And he was playing better than anybody I saw with full use of their fingers. Uh, you, know, you just see stuff like that and you're going, oh my God. You know, th- th- this is just so spectacular. This is music like it's supposed to be heard, you know. Um, anyway, that, that music is just huge, uh, I, and I just wish I understood more of it. Well, you know, I always tell people that um, if, it, if it weren't for the listeners, the musicians would be pretty lonely. Yeah. Because you know, people's like, oh, I can't play a thing. It's like, yeah, but you listen really well. <laughs> <laughs> there you and go. Yeah, and that's, that's I mean, all that's it really takes. Is it, you know, just you know, and that's where like, the vast majority of us fall in that category. I think of, you know, we just enjoy listening to it. We maybe don't. Uh, my one of my daughters in law is that way. She uh, she doesn't play a musical instrument, but she she likes music. You know, so uh, and my son, you know, plays an instrument, saying so he's very good. But uh, it's. Uh, you know, we're we're all at different areas uh, of the spectrum on music appreciation, and uh, you know, as I said earlier, at, at one end you got Beethoven and Mozart, and the other end you got you know, uh, my dog has sleeves, you know, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, well, there. I mean, I mean, I could talk about music for hours and hours uh, because it, I mean, it's so near and dear to my heart. That's how I made my living for my almost all of my adult life. Um, really? So, yeah, yeah. I played piano and sang um, by myself or with bands or trios or whatever, but that was that was what I did from, my, you know, from before I got out of high school. And so, what, what particular um, uh, style of music did you uh, prefer? Well, you know, people would ask me that, and I, and I was like, well, there's only two kinds of music. Good and bad, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. Um, and and I mean, I I liked um, originally the, the classical rock because at that time classic rock wasn't classic yet. You know? Right. Yeah. So you know, groups that that like yes, that I mean, they mastery with uh, their instruments and um, 
classical musicians like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Um, uh-huh. Just, you know, masterful uh, musicians. But that's, I mean, I like country. I like, you know, sacred music. I like all kinds. I just I never liked, you know, the uh, the trendy stuff. I didn't like. They didn't like disco and didn't like. I don't care for rap that much because it's not really singing; it's talking. I always remember uh, what um, um, uh, Greg Allman was once asked. Uh, you know, what do you think of of rap? And he said, "Rap is short for crap." So <laughs> that was. I, I always had to laugh at that answer. It, it, <laughs> I, I know that's not true necessarily, but it, it's just a hard. Uh, it's a hard bit of uh, music to get into. My daughters, granddaughters, are into it big time. They just love it. Um, and uh, I, uh, I, but I, I am like you that you get to, to a certain point with certain music. Disco put me off. As soon as I heard punk, new wave, heavy metal, I just turned the, the radio off. Um, and so it's you know there, I, I have a whole bunch of stuff that I don't like. Uh, but I'm like you. I like that good musicianship. I like to, to hear uh, the people that really know what the heck they're doing uh, out there. And uh, that's why I always love groups like uh, the Moody Blues, uh, people like that. That uh, you know, they, they could really just give such great performances. Yeah. Yeah, and every one of them is a master on their, their instrument. Yeah. yeah, and Queen. I mean, the list goes on. And that's, that's the music that I really like, the music that was difficult to play. Um, truly, and but I think you know the appeal of of rap is that anybody can sing along with it. If you learn, you know, if you learn the the the, the words, you can you can participate without any um, you know vocal talent. So well, this I is think true, that, and, but uh, the unfortunate like, thing is that the musicianship is lost. So you, uh, I yeah, understand gu- guitar sales are down like crazy over the last ten fifteen years, and that's too bad. You know, we're, we've um, We've gotten so focused on uh, on, uh, on rap that we're not doing we're, we're not focusing on the instrumentality anymore. Now I think we've lost yeah. lost something if we do that. Yeah, well, you know what? There's a there's a, a new breed of child that's that's coming and and they will I'm I know that they will do great things with music and kind of you know revitalize it because it, it did get kind of you know decayed if, it, uh, mm-hmm. if that's the right word but um yeah i just i just uh i love to talk about music but we're getting a little bit far from uh atlantis oh well um, but you know but i mean it, i'm sure that as you say that music was an integral part in day-to-day atlantean life because they i think so and, and that, that to together. me was that was one of my inspirations to say that you know these people had this unique uh, ability that we are only really scratching the surface on right now, and uh, and I think that uh, you know that there's and that's the wonderful mystery of music because there's so much more we need to learn about it and what its capabilities are. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know it, it'll be interesting. And you think of all the music that's ever been written in the whole history of of life on earth there's still only 12 notes exactly and the difference you know the ways you put those notes together with the rhythm and the you know the occurrence of the notes that you know um you can 
to have two people who do not speak the same language. One grew up, you know, halfway around the world, but they're both musicians, and you put them down, and they can communicate, and they can, you know, complement each other because it's a universal language. Exactly. You know, so that's, that's you know, the beauty of it. You know, total strangers. You sit down, it's like, okay, let's play these three chords and, and play around with it, and, and you just you start creating something, yeah. you know, potentially beautiful with someone you never met and don't have anything in common with except the music. I know. It's just that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brian, it has just been a pleasure um, having you back on the show. And as Lavendar said, when you've got, you know, something new coming out or something else you want to come on and talk about, you're always welcome here. And, well, thank um, you so much. You made me feel yeah. so welcome. It was uh, yeah. it's a very enjoyable time. Yeah, and we'll we'll be looking for you to show up in Arkansas one day. We go four times a year, so um, and now that travel is kind of easier than it was last year, yeah. uh, you know, we're 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 going back full steam ahead. Okay, great. Well, hopefully, I'll see you out there. Okay, it sounds good. And once again, the website is songofatlantis.com. And if you have any questions or comments on uh, tonight's episode, you can reach out to Brian on the website. Great. Thank okay. you so much. Okay. You're so welcome. You take care. And you too. Uh, we will wrap it up. Thank you. We will wrap it up right now. And we'll be back two weeks to, from tonight. And until okay. then. Until then, um, to our audience, to our listeners, every day find something to be grateful for and hold on to it and then show compassion and not judgment. Until next time, good night, everyone. Good night. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 